Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast. It's me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we're joined by Paul Bossy, Senior Technical Consultant at AHMM and an RIBA Chartered Architect with over 40 years experience. At AHMM, he has developed the Principal Designer Leadership Program and provides training on CDM, Principal Designer, Fire Safety and Inclusive Design Services across the RIBA regions. He sits on various HSE, RIBA and CIC Health and Safety Expert Committees and is a member of the Association for Project Safety. He's also the author of CDM 2015, A Practical Guide for Architects and Designers on RIBA Publishing. So today we're going to talk about some of those things that have cropped up in, in his biography there. And we look at some of the issues essential to the understanding of the role of principal designer. Go, blimey, I'm exhausted. Right. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks for joining us. We always start, I guess, with the potted history, where you're from, where you studied and all the rest of it, how you got to where you are. Where am I from? Okay, so Hornchurch in Essex um, and uh, via Liverpool University. But before I went there to do my first degree, I had a year out um, on the basis of my A-level results being better than expected and not being offered a place before. So I took a year out and worked for a firm of architects because I could draw a bit in those days with repeater map pens, those of you remember them, and took an A-level in building construction. I'm the only person who seems to have an A-level in that. I took a local course at the at Barking College of Technology, which was in building construction. And that really kind of set me off in a, in a way, understanding, um, working for a firm of architects who did some housing and some quite large buildings in the Brentwood area. But then having done three years at Liverpool University, the first year of which was um, just after the Summerland fire, which you might recall, 51 people killed, including children. And that really affected me in my first year. And I've been subsequently very interested in the application of regulations as part of the design process, not just an adjunct that bolts on, but actually integrated with design. Having done three years in, uh, in Liverpool, I went to Zambia, of all places, which was supposed to be one year. But because I enjoy playing cricket out there so much and other things, I ended up staying three years and working for a small practice, designing quite large houses for affluent bank managers and things, but also some domestic housing for the local community. I then, in my last year, worked for a contractor. So I got quite a lot of practical on-site experience that way, and that has really informed me to the line of I've taken building buildings, anything from domestic up to Birmingham International Convention Centre and being involved in the railways in Dubai. So I had quite a variety of experience and I find myself very interested in how buildings are built as well as looking good. Well, I say potted history, that was uh, almost in real time. Was Summerland in 72? I was at Liverpool um, 76 to 79, so Summerland was just before that. It might, I think it might have been 72 or 74, it was around about that period. Yeah. And we had the Lancashire Fire Brigade, who were very involved in the process, explaining what happened and how we could possibly avoid things. And, and obviously that's had a big synergy with, with Grenfell in my later years. Moving straight on, if we would then, because you've kind of given us uh, a real good start as to who you are and uh, why you're interested in all this stuff. The Building Safety Act, which we'll kind of come on to in the second half of this stuff, but I think we need to kind of get a ground rules of a couple of 
I don't know, definitions or what have you. So that came into force in June 2022, and it's got a whole series of uh, new um, ideas behind it from the building safety regulator, higher risk buildings, the golden thread, and all that kind of stuff. So it'd be useful to talk through some of those issues. So if we start with that one on higher risk. I mean, the government are trying to keep their um, options open, but they're narrowing it down to um, the trigger height of 18 metres, seven storeys, and two dwellings. Um, but including care homes and hospitals from a design perspective, not from an occupant's perspective. Um, however, they could and probably will be extended in the future to include other high-risk buildings of any height, even lower. So schools and care homes particularly, and, but even up to you know, hotels and, and nursing homes and, and buildings certainly of a more complex nature, such as stations or leisure schemes summerland type buildings so really they're keeping their options open but because they've got limited resources they've got to concentrate on the tall buildings of a residential nature at the moment so so what is it about 18 meters interesting um i've looked at this Uh, 18 meters relates back to a victorian ladder which had a fly ladder on the top which was on wheels no fire engine and they wheeled it around but actually the 80 meters was not really a, a level at which you could climb out. It's more getting up and getting fire, getting water on the fire, because it's pretty scary getting out at 18 meters, um, I would say. And current normal fire engines only have ladders going up 11 to 13 meters. So it's a big misnomer, frankly. And it was a decision we think made in some smoke filled room by um, various professionals in fire engineering some years ago. So we've ended up with firefighting shafts at 18 meters and it's become some sort of sacred figure. We're more akin to the 11 metres as being an appropriate height, to be yeah. fairly honest, which I think Scotland agree with as well. So, so having, uh, having fire engineers in a smoke-filled room uh, is, a, is a picture <laughs> to conjure with, isn't it? Different um, kind of smoke. Yeah. Yeah, so the high-risk minister, when we've got this idea of the building safety regulator, what, what, what is the building safety regulator? Well, it's interesting, going back my 40 years, when I first started as an architect, building control for London was a, a very difficult process to get through. If Mr. Black, who lectured to us at, um, when I took my part two, which was at North London uh, Polytechnic at that time, but um, Mr. Black, if you disagree with him, you're in trouble. You didn't get your building regs approval. So uh, these are the districts of ours in London, of course. They had amazing power. Um, and the building control authorities had to sort of bow down to them as well. But they were all expunged by virtue of deregulation and will go for an approved inspector who was actually buying your own regulator. So Julia Hackett particularly said, well, how can you do this? We need to go back to where we were. Various other countries abroad have gone exactly through that process and realised buying a regulator doesn't work. Deregulation of regulation, it's, it's a tautology, I think. So um, that's where we're at. Um, And I think the process will be a lot more stringent, a lot more sanctions. In fact, two years imprisonment and an indefinite fine, which will tend to concentrate people's attention. For what? Um, For non-compliance to the building regs. Really? Yeah. Whether that gets through the final secondary um, stage of the legislation will be interesting to see. Well, it'd be interesting to see what government we have in place uh, for any secondary <laughs> legislation. It's happening in the back. The civil servants seem to be working hard on that. Yeah, no, they're, they're, well, there's, there's a couple of kind of key things I don't suppose they can let drop. 
but on the on the government's uh, website, it says the building safety regulator, which effectively is the HSC, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, will oversee the safety and performance of all buildings. Which yeah. I didn't think the HSC was that all powerful. Uh, so how can they achieve it? Well, what does it mean? I, I think, I mean, there's a presumption by a lot of people that um, it's just HRBs that are covered by the Building Safety Act. But no, it's very clear that the Building Safety Act covers all buildings. Consequently, it all falls under the HSE's jurisdiction. But the HRBs they're going to primarily concentrate on because they've only got limited numbers of, of new um, building control officers. Um, and and the, the rest of it will go back to building control, but that's still under the HSE's um, authority. Whereas in the past, it used to be the Home Office, and it was a kind of a separate um, thing. It's now all focused on the HSE. So it, just, so just to clarify that these terms again, the, um, the, the building control officers, so let's say local authority guys, yeah. and then there's approved inspectors, private individuals, are they both now called building control approvers? Yes, I think that's the term that's going to be what they settle on. Right. The, so the approved inspectors will effectively change their name to this building certifiers, whatever they are, and they're going to be subcontracted to the local authority um, right. because the local authorities don't have sufficient resources to deal with all of it. Okay. And then the HSE themselves, having overview of all buildings, is that just that you have to kind of notify them when it says they're going to they're going to oversee the safety and performance of all buildings, that that doesn't make sense, does it? Really? I mean, they're going to be what just notified of buildings, and they can have them on their register, or I th- yeah, interesting. They have to you have to register. Clients will have to register all HRBs, but if you're making a building regs application, obviously they're aware of it. So um, I think the HRBs is more of the registration issue. Um, a okay. building regs application will apply to all other buildings okay. as normal. But but the if you have a building over eighteen meters, that's uh, that's one thing, and a building under you know let's say eleven meters. So if you're doing if you're doing a project which has got one smallish and one tallish tower, uh, could you could you go for two different types of approver? Like the, uh, no, areas? I think you'll no. find if it's one project, it'll be an HRB, even though part of it is lower. Right. Um, but you could split it down into two projects if you wanted to. Not that you want to. Well, yeah, and we've just been talking about there's a lot of projects that are going to be under 18 metres and seven storeys uh, going forward, I think. <laughs> um, OK, well, look, uh, in terms of the uh, principal designer's duties, let's start with uh, CDM regulations and the principal designer, because I know there's additional uh, uh, duties imposed on principal designers under the Building Safety Act. So let's just start. What is a principal designer? Um, I think the clue is in the title. It's principal and it's a designer. And uh, it's, uh, you know, frankly, as simple as that. But it, under the CDM regulations, that didn't prove to be the case. It ended up being a third party health and safety consultant who had um, tried to rebadge themselves after the change in the legislation from a CDMC. CDM coordinator to a principal designer, and it was meant to be a whole different role. But unfortunately, the industry have um, have not have done a workaround, I would say. So the, the new principal designer, which arguably includes CDM and Building Safety Act, but is being concentrated on the Building Safety Act uh, initially, is a designer with control over the design work. And I think that's pretty unequivocal who that's targeted at, certainly on architectural projects. So does that does the way that it's written in the Building Safety Act as a statutory instrument does that 
undermine maybe what's gone what, what it's what it says in the CDMs? Is, is it meant to complement it or is it where there's contradictions? Which one takes place? I don't know. I mean, I think they've kept the same term because there's such a synergy between the two roles. The CDM principal designer is intended to look at the, the construction stage and future maintenance and future demolition, arguably. Um, whereas the principal designer under the Building Safety Act is more about the occupation and, and the building regs approval stage. So it's it's more concentrating on the in-use than the during construction. Yeah. But there's an overlap between the two. And I think because it's an HSE issue, because the HSE didn't quite land the principal designer in the past, they've called it the same because they see the two joining up. And I think there's going to be a lot of, of organisations um, who are going to realise that there is this thing called the organisational PD and the individual PD. So the organisation would be the company, in my case, AHMM, and then we would have principal designers. It wouldn't necessarily be me. They would be the project architects, and I'd be advising them within AHMM. Obviously, a smaller practice, it would be slightly different. But I think right. that's really the structure as I understand it. Cool. Blimey. Okay. Uh, there'll, there'll be questions arising in my head as we speak, but uh, let's let's crack mm -hmm. on and see how we, how we go with the structure. Um, so the client has got duties under CDM 2015 to appoint a principal designer. That's straightforward. Yep. Um, but if it's you know, if, if you've got a commercial client, but they're not really kind of forfait with CDM, how is that? It's always that kind of tricky thing about, you know, before you're appointed, you have to tell them that they need to appoint you kind of thing. So, <laughs> so, so what's the deal? It how is you... rather ludicrous, but I mean... Um... Some clients were much more aware than others, and certainly through the RBA and under the CDM regime, there was what they called a client care letter, which basically laid out what the client duties are in fairly straightforward terms. And to be honest, it's not that difficult a job. Um, they've got to provide resources and fees and time to make sure the job's carried out, and they've got to keep monitoring it to make sure that's happening. And, and very much the way we've worked it at AHMM, we have a very uh, intuitive method of communicating that so they understand what's going on as they go through. If you give them a 300-page uh, check checklist of, of risks and or building regs issues, they glaze over and they're not interested. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's very much about that, helping them, holding hands through the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please find attached a building safety act. Yeah, that kind of that kind of thing never worked, does it? Yes. Uh, so, look, it, it, but in terms of the the domestic clients, this is the one. I mean, to be honest with you, I am a little bit confused by this because the CDM very clearly states that the domestic client duties tend to pass to the contractor or principal contractor. What about client duties before the contractor is appointed? So, you know, it's uh, a commonly asked question, and and the fact is, you have to. Um, you, you can agree to be the to take the client duties on as an architect. You need to have that agreed in writing. Um, presume the lawyers have made that case, and it is not unreasonable to charge an additional fee. But it's it's not a major imponderance, I would say. Uh, the major thing is to appoint a competent contractor, which often is the problem um, at that scale of the industry. But certainly, um, in terms of the principal designer. As lead designer, you automatically become the principal designer. Um, and some clients think, oh, well, that case, it comes free, doesn't it? Well, arguably, no, because there is still a duty 
and there's still a deliverable that needs to be produced and that has a value so but unfortunately because of the european directive requirements to do this there's all sorts of confusion in this area i think the confusion lies in the fact that it's actually the client duties passed to the principal contractor people assume it's yeah. the duties that the principal designer doesn't actually have a role to play until Absolutely. asked yeah. yeah. I mean, are there insurance liabilities that come with principal designers' roles over and above the architect? People make much more of a meal of it than it really is. And certainly CDM advisors say, oh, you've got to know the um, CDM regulations back to front and upside down. No, you haven't. You've got to have a bit of a knowledge of, of, of understanding CDM, but better, you're a designer of architectural buildings and you can put all that together with a bit of health and safety in there as well. And so the PI insurers, frankly are happy with that if you can demonstrate also you have a methodology of how to deal with it without having a knee bosch or some other um, obscure health and safety qualification. Kai bosch, as we call it. Um, <laughs> what, what, but what about, because following on from that, I mean, the, competence is that word at the moment, isn't it? Um, and yeah. nobody seems to know what the hell we're talking about when we discuss it. So for insurer to be happy that you've got the competence to kind of be the uh, PD. And apart from just generally that you're a professional, you're an architect yep. and all the rest of it, what's what's extras you have to show? Okay, so being for my sins on the Interim Industry Competence Committee set up by the HSE, um, I've been trying to explore this quite a lot and also on the PAS for the principal designer, which is trying to outline it, the competence of the print designer. It's about demonstrating that A, you've got the skills, knowledge, experience and behaviours um, whatever they are. Um, some people struggle with that, the skeb. But, but actually, it's have you done this sort of building before? Um, what other skills do you have in fire and structural safety, particularly under the Building Safety Act? And that's where the RIBA are realising we have to up our game a bit, understand a bit more about fire stopping and passive fire resistance or structural fire protection and the interface with structures. Um, not becoming a structure engineer or fire engineer in the process, but having a better um, understanding uh, with all those issues. And then, frankly, putting all that together, showing that you have produced some buildings of a similar nature. How do you move on, though, to higher risk buildings? Well, you've worked in companies where they've already done them. We've got companies out there currently designing them. They're going to have to show their confidence as, competence as well going forward. But it's a growing thing. And the RIB are very keen to support this. We don't want third-party competence assessors coming in and telling us what we've got to do, as happened at CDMs 2015. Yeah. But the due diligence then is done by whom? The client? Well, yeah, who, are, who often don't know anyway. So they've got to defer to the professional institutes. And this is where the IICC, uh, I, I think, are moving. That's RIBA, RICS, ICE, ISTRUCD have all got to raise their bar sufficiently to also have UCAS accreditation themselves to make sure that they can um, justify that. And then all architects are going to have to have their own revalidation every between two and five years. I think it's going to be more likely five years, as do surgeons and other professionals in, in various other industries. So in terms of the principal designer, what I read on the HSC page, the page, are you a principal designer? Uh, it says the principal designer does not have to carry out actual design work on the project. Is that is that in the spirit of CDM regulations? Is that in fact correct? Um, interestingly, because that was the essence that came, or what the essence, the the um, spirit that seemed to come through CDM, because they were worried that no one would take on this job um, if they weren't carrying out design work. So what we've ended up with getting is people from the Institute of Electrical Engineers 
who know how to rewire a 13 amp plug, but generally struggle with architectural design. But they're, they're the principal designers on various projects. And that has caused a lot of angst, frankly, within the HSE and in the industry where um, architects have said, well, let them get on with it then in that case, because they tend to put in very low fee bid for filling out a huge spreadsheet. And I, I know a lot of these people, um, very worthy people, but they don't understand the architectural design, unfortunately. So how can they be a principal designer, even at CDM, let alone the Building Safety Act? So I think there's going to be a bit of a, a, a stir up, to be perfectly honest. Okay, so yeah, so this can be a push to, I don't know, professionalize or whatever you want to yeah. call it, but it still may be the fact that it could be a QS. Uh, that's what I was thinking it was relating to, QS as engineers and what have you, not actually carrying a design work. But that leads on to the next question, really, which is about a designer. A designer is anyone who specifies or alters designs as part of their work. So if you innocently or kind of accidentally or minimally make a change to a design, you, you wander into the design team meeting and you're going to say, move that over there. Do you, do you then fall into the scope of the regs? Okay, so it's interesting. I think the, one of the reasons they, they had that in there was because certain people like clients would say, right, so we don't want that parapet, we want a low parapet because we don't want to spend the money on it. And it's a cost related issue. So they tend to have a, they wanted to have them in a designer category so they could prosecute them under, under the regulations. I think, because at the end of the day, the HSA say we are prosecutors. Although we do like to help you a bit, but essentially we prosecute. So the whole point of a, a designer under CDM is meant to be someone who is actively working and producing information, whether it be schedules, quantity surveying costs or design issues, landscape design issues even, but they need to be designers. So unfortunately that was a bit um, a bit confusing, but again, uh, sort of opened the door to non-designers, unfortunately. I was reading a couple of articles from uh, a year or two ago talking about the fact that if, if the PD is working on a design and build contract and then gets to work with the contractor, there may be occasions where there's a conflict of interest between whose work you're signing off effectively. Uh, or, or approving it, 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 has there occurred that there's conflict of interest in this role or should it be straightforward as professionals as architects we have to sign up to the code of conduct um, and if we're working for the contractor there can be a conflict of interest because essentially he's paying you but um, and this is where we think under the building safety act that design build does not really um, equate with that in, in terms of the you can't buy your regulator and as a designer, you have to approve their work on site. So if you're working for them, it's very difficult to have a robust liaison discussion with them. And so we think very much the architect has got to have an independence from the principal contractor. Under CDM, theoretically, the principal contractor could become the principal designer. But under the BSA, they've got to prove that they're a designer. And I don't see how they're going to do that. They might have a few design managers who perhaps gone to part one RBA and didn't want to go any further. But I don't know how they're, they're going to have enough trouble proving their principal contractors, let alone principal designers, because they're going to have to prove their competence as well. Oh, this is, uh, this is all more, more fun than I thought. Um, <laughs> uh, so look, let's, let's move on to the, to the Building Safety Act and the principal designer within that document. So first of all, a principal designer uh, must cooperate and share information with the building safety regulator. So does that specifically or is the intention that that relates to the fire safety plans at gateway one uh, or, or what's what's the what's the bottom line to that okay so um principal designer must cooperate and share information with the building safety regulator i mean it, i think that's what we do 
I mean, to be honest, um, and it's giving, I would suggest, information which is more comprehensible, not a spreadsheet of how you've complied with regulations, but marked up drawings. Um, specification, which is clearly labelled, we're going to have this type of fire door, even if it's not prescriptive, it'll be performance based. And drawings showing travel distance and what BS or building rigs you refer to. And that is a bit of a challenge in its own right, but increasingly, we're hoping to get more prescriptive legislation than we currently have. And that is one of the challenges we have at the moment. Our risk-based regulations and approved documents are a challenge in this country. And, and that was all to, again, due to the deregulation we've had in the past. So what you're saying is instead of those kind of reams and reams and reams of risk assessment spreadsheets, uh, you want it to be a bit more kind of interactive and more... Visual. Um, <laughs> yeah, visual yeah. on drawings, as we do, used to do. Um, and, <laughs> and frankly, you know, it saves a thousand words, to be honest. Um, yeah. And you can communicate that far better. If we can simplify the legends or the keys to information across the whole RBA profession, but that's a challenge to get them all to do the same thing. But if you could do that, we can then help the these new approved certifiers, whatever they're going to be called, to actually understand what's being done here. Um, yeah, and yeah, the yeah. insurers are interested in that as well. Speaking of insurers, uh, the principal designer must ensure compliance, not insure, must ensure compliance with the building regulations, which sounds hellish to me. I mean, how okay, is that, so, that going to work? So the word ensure, we've told the government that you can't insure, ensure, but you can take all reasonable steps to ensure. And so that is the terminology that's currently being proposed. Again, we've got to see that come through the secondary legislation. You can only go so far as reasonably practicable as the term is is expressed in the CDM regulations. And that is is reasonable. Otherwise, no one will do this and the whole industry will stop because you can't get insurance for it. And the definition of reasonableness will then be brought out yeah. in court. Well, everyone says it's the man in the curly wig that'll have to decide on that. But frankly, you wouldn't, again, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, would you, if you worried about that? Um, so you have to then come to a level of professional agreement, which is, this is where team collaboration is essential, including the client, including the other consultants. You've come to professional judgment in terms of building regs or CDM, and that stands up in court, even if something goes wrong. Yeah, but there's definitely been... Uh, a, a gradual slide into risk aversion and uh, litigation avoidance and goodness knows what. I, mean, I appreciate that's. I mean, when, when I mentioned risk assessment schedules, that's what they always were, wasn't it? You know, I've done yeah. the design. I'm now going to pass on the blame or the or the liability down the chain to the contractor and then to the to the, the subcontractor. Um, and if they fall off the scaffold, you know, I told him so. Therefore, I'm not liable. So there's that. There's always been that kind of liability avoidance and risk aversion. Do you think this is actually bringing the balance back, or do you think it might actually? Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. it is bringing the balance back because there is a, a, a absolutely what you say. These huge risk assessment schedules were about liability transfer, not about helping the industry or helping that operative on site. So coming up with a database of every risk known to man. Um, is more of a problem than actually um, not doing it, so to speak, and concentrating on what we call the significant CDM and building safety issues. So, we, so and, the, and the, the CDM regulations clearly point this out, but it's been morphed by people who want to produce a massive spreadsheet and then run run the tote on a, on a project 
um, and, and, and justify their existence as health and safety consultants, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, very interesting. Um, I'll just move on. The, the principal designer says uh, the Bill and Safety Act has to hand over pre a pre-construction pack of information, obviously the same with CDM. That has to be handed over to the principal contractor. So the pre-construction information in CDM should really relate to services, uh, surveys, sorry, of the site, and the general design of the building at early stages. Under the Building Safety Act, added to that will have to be some structural information and some fire statement information about fire brigade access to the site, about numbers of staircases, travel distances, and the general form and mass of the building, um, and where the local fire water supplies are. It might have a bit about the external cladding as well, given the Grenfell situation, that it's not going to be class O. It might not necessarily say what it will be. But so, so that's really the intention. And, and, and at the gateway one, that should be very similar. Or the CDM information would be the pre-construction information together with that. And, and we've put together with the RBA a toolkit to capture this. Um, at the what we call CDM one and two stage, it's a strategy brief for both fire and safety issues captured, survey information, and then we move into the next gateway, which would be a full plans application with a lot more detail on the top of that. And breaking it down into the deliverables um, makes a lot of sense. If it's some kind of spreadsheet of building regs and CDM issues, it, it, it's it becomes. Um, an incomprehensible um, wall of words, I find. No, exactly. And, and since you talk about breaking it down into kind of uh, digestible information, this whole thing about the golden thread is is something which is quite intriguing. As it happens, since you mentioned CDM coordinators in the past, I've heard of golden thread consultants uh, arising uh, to make a quick buck on the back of all this, <laughs> uh, you know, offering their services to pull documents together. But again, what I don't understand, because I know there's going to be a secure box and everything built into most designs now. But what what form does this take? Is it is it a you know a USB or is it a document? I mean, I think or, a lot of people are out there trying to find the. Um, the golden panacea of um, of information in a digital format. But we've had a health and safety file for years under CDM since 94. We've had a, a section 38 requirement to provide a fire statement under the building regs, which has been ignored by decades of, of building control officers. And, and frankly, the combination of those two together creates the golden thread of information about the building. So fire strategy, fire detail, and then the um, CDM health and safety file all goes together to create this Greek mythology golden thread thing, which has kind of rather become or, or taken up a life of its own. It's really a manual of how to deal with the health and safety and the fire and structural safety issues of the building going forward. It gives a bit of documentation about how you designed it as well. So what regulations, I had to do a lot of research after Grenfell and what the regulations were in 1974, when Grenfell was originally designed and built, goes back to 72, 74, and then seeing what they are now, because we've got this non-betterment clause in our regulations, which means, oh, well, you don't have to update it to modern standards. So you have to understand what the line in the sand was at the date of your building design. And that's captured very clearly in the golden thread. And then 20 years ahead, someone can look back and say, oh, those idiots there did this. They should have known better. 
yeah. But hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It is, it is. Uh, and and we're, we're having a session on uh, the Defective Premises Act and the implications, uh, which look quite severe, uh, later on in the, in the series. But uh, just a quick, um, I suppose, final question, and we're nearly there anyway, which is something you, you wrote on LinkedIn, quoting something back at you you said the current trigger height of 18 meters constitutes a higher risk building so this would seem to be the sensible starting point for two staircases you say the current adb one and two actually recognize that 11 meters is the maximum for a small single stair building for dwellings and other buildings misinterpretation and relaxation of our risk-based legislation has allowed the uk to have single stairs at an infinite height you said misinterpretation, I think maybe inadequate wording, because basically what it says in the ADB1, especially, um, is open to interpretation, I, I guess. So I suppose the starting point is, is that you think we should have two staircases at 18 metres. From the point of view of fire brigade getting into a building and completely um, making the existing single staircase worse than it was when the fire started, invariably they do that initially with their hoses, all their equipment, people coming up. So anyone who's wanted to escape during that period of time are jeopardised considerably. There's a lot more smoke on the staircase. Having said that also, we've got every um, housing block, particularly with our current recession and the problems with the NHS, every housing block is a care home. It has vulnerable people, whether they're children, elderly or disabled within the building, possibly up to 20, 25 percent of the occupants. We should be considering them primarily getting them out the building. Um, So in combination of those two, one staircase is inadequate to deal with a proper evacuation, given the fact that they've all been told to stay put initially, and then they might be getting a trickle of information to tell them to evacuate. But there's still, with the evacuation alert systems, no voice communication going to every flat. Um, How are they going to communicate without loud hailers? At the moment, the fire brigade bang on doors to tell you to get the hell out of here. Um, But then you're running into smoke. So we're very strongly of the view, and this is something which a lot of the countries abroad um, have this um, view that you need two staircases. Not that you're going to lose one, you need both. One's for the fire brigade, the other one's for evacuation of the other 75% of people who are ambulant, um, and and the fire brigade can protect them both and make sure you can get out. So you've got a better chance, you've got alternative options. Um, The way we stand at the moment, the information in in the ADB is, um, I would say, silent on the issue of, of, the, of the two staircases. And it implies you can have one staircase going to infinite height. It wouldn't say that, but they should, they're effectively saying it by default. Um, and it's only us and South Korea who allow this to happen in the world. They do have the same principle as us that you can go an indefinite height in one story. Again, I don't know if that's intentional or the same of us by, by silence, default. The actual volume B, I mean, you know this better than I do, but it says that for fire safety for homes, having a single means of escape is acceptable for residential buildings taller than 4.5 metres under certain conditions, uh, blah, 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 blah. And in very tall buildings, typically with a story over 45 metres in height, physical measures may need to be incorporated, such as by discounting a stair. So once you get over 45 metres, it's saying, not, not 18, then you have to have a discounted fire, fire service shaft. 
so the 18 minutes. So what, what the question now is, is that if that if the regs say that, and maybe I'm misinterpreting it by the critical look on your face, but um <laughs> the uh but would it be acceptable for somebody to design to the regs if they didn't say you needed to have two staircases for an 18 meter high building? Uh, or do you think that there's kind of moral pressure on people now to to comply before the regs change in? I think uh, there's a various working groups that the HSE are currently um, pushing through the process to, to develop a new set of approved documents. There's a realisation that they are not fit for purpose, as Judith Hackett suggested. Um, there's ambiguity and there's capability to be, um, to be gamed, I would suggest. And to be honest, I've been working um, with architects for many years now, as I've said before, and I've been designing out staircases all over the place, designing in one staircase all over the place. Grenfell happened, and I thought, why have we been doing this? You know, just to be honest, you know, is there a good rationale for... I, and I, I'm interested to hear your, your comment about this 45 metres. Um, I'm not going to question you on that now, but certainly things like that relate to wet risers. Um, but to, to my understanding, single storey up to 11 metres is clearly stated, but above 11 metres, it doesn't say you need two, but it implies um, that one is not adequate. There's <laughs> ambiguity there massively. And okay. There was this um, research project. There's a meeting in a couple of weeks to discuss this. Um, it happened in North London where they, they'd done some trials with the London Fire Brigade in a 17-storey tower block and tried to capture what would happen in various scenarios. It's very difficult to simulate fire and smoke and get a good... I don't know, get good research from that. I'll see what comes of that. But I'll check your 45 metres. What I'll do is I'll leave it in, so I'll sound like a fool or a genius, uh, depending <laughs> on the context. But it says paragraph 3.27 in the B1. That's where I got it from. 3.27, uh, OK. Yeah. So moving quickly, swiftly on. Anything else that we, we haven't covered that we should have covered, do you think, on this poll? I'm sure there's a million things, but anything is central. I mean, really, I, I lectured around the country for a couple of years um, just before lockdown and did various polls, asked architects, how many of you would like to live in a 25-storey tower block on the top floor um, with your elderly parents and the stay-put policy? And I got about 1% across the whole country who were happy to do that. I think that gives a fair indication of the way architects feel about it, but they're quite happy to design it because they're being pushed down that route by clients who want to get the maximum net to, net to gross area. And if it's not better than 83%, then you're not on the job anymore. So a secondary staircase is counterintuitive. But frankly, I think we should be thinking about the people and, and actually have a, um, an approach which is more to do with society than, than profit. Obviously, we've all got to make a profit, but at whose expense? Oh, blimey, the revolution starts here, Paul. Uh, the, uh, just, just, well, on that, you know, like the, the whole New York street scene is based on external fire escape stairs, isn't it? Those old, yep. you know, 1950s yep. metal things. Is that, is, is that a possibility here? Or is, especially, like I said, the Defective Premises Act, where there's going to be a lot of retrospective uh, refit and some of it will not be feasible internally. Um, I just wondered whether there's going to be any scope for... Okay, so, so the RBA we've produced um, a retrospective refit approach. We've got what we call layers of safety. So introducing other layers onto an existing single staircase building when it's wet risers, separating fire, fire floors at perhaps every 10 storeys, five to 10 storeys, so you can actually escape upwards, as people did at Grenfell, but then they died on the top floor, 
Um, so you can actually, in various countries abroad, they have horizontal compartmentation higher than the normal as you go up a building. So actually to protect people to, to stay in a place of refuge and having this little box on a landing, which is um, dotted line showing a, a disabled person in diagrammatic form. I would hate to be in a wheelchair on a staircase, which is probably full of smoke and firemen and people trying to escape, waiting to be evacuated. We need to have better vulnerable person refuges inside the building and evacuation lifts, which the London plan is very much promoting. And I think that will be across the country soon as well. Again, additional cost, but actually in a civilised society, should we not be looking after our vulnerable persons? I think so. Very well said, very well said. I mean, I've always been horrified by that wheelchair dotted line, to be honest with you, watching people escape to safety. It's 900 by 1400. And, uh, and to be honest, um, I everyone draws it in there thinking they're doing something beneficial. Actually, it's a nonsense. Yeah. And you just need three people in a wheelchair and you're buggered anyway, aren't you? So, true, uh, true. Uh, all right, Paul, look, uh, that covered one hell of a lot of ground. I have, I'm very, very grateful to you indeed. Um, a very interesting, difficult topic uh, that we all need to know about, very straightforwardly explained. So thank you very much for that. There's a lot more to this topic, uh, and we'll be re revisiting it in the near future. That was Paul Bussey himself. He speaks on a range of CBD sessions on this topic, so look out for him online. That's all we have time for today. Please tune into the Professional Practice Podcast and listen to our archive on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Austin Williams. Many thanks for listening. Until the next time, goodbye. Goodbye.